3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to 3CR 855am. This morning, this early morning, on The Breakfast Show with Grace. How are we all this morning? It's early start to the day as usual and I'm here with you bringing you current affairs and I hope you will continue to stay to listen for the rest of the hour and a half. Well, it's been quite a lovely week before. I Just to share, with, share a bit with you, I actually went to Warburton over on Dick. I think it was on Wednesday, if I remember, if I remember correctly, and yeah, it was a very fun time. I went alone because I wanted to have my alone time, which I couldn't really give myself for the past of twenty twenty three. So I decided this time, if I go somewhere far away, uh, I should I want to go by myself, <laughs> and so. I went all the way to Warburton. I think it took me about two hours and it was very enjoyable. Even though it was raining, it was actually pouring quite a while till like the afternoon, like 11 a.m. And But it was really fun. I think be able to be by myself in the rain. Plus, there wasn't really any, there wasn't anyone across the Yarra River. Because when I went to Warburton, I was walking through the Yarra River walk and it was very peaceful at that there was barely and there was literally no one there was I was the only person there the foolish one <laughs> walking through the rain by myself uh, across the Yarra River but it was really fun and I felt like I could just have my peace time and get put away all my pressures and worries as I was doing some self-reflection as well so I think I really appreciate and enjoy being able to live this moment so I'm very grateful for that as well and of course I had really delicious meat pies and also a vegetarian I think it was a ricola spinach roll it was really delicious I had it from the Warburton bakery and yeah it I just love it I just love it it was amazing I'm so glad I gave myself this alone time I'm definitely going to do it again because a long time is good. I think some sometimes we need it. Sometimes we need to be away from people, have our own time, speak our own minds by ourselves. So yes, I'm so glad I gave myself this time. Anyways, sorry about blabbering about that. On to headlines for this early morning. For 20th, 22nd of January, Mexico and Chile have asked the International Criminal Court to prop war crimes committed by Israel against Palestine in its ongoing pursuit to ethnically cleanse the country. In a statement released on Thursday, Mexico foreign minister said the referral was sparked by a quote, growing concern about the latest escalation of violence, particularly against civilians. Close calm. 
The ICC, based in Hague, in The Hague, is an international court with the ability to prosecute individuals for international crimes, including war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Its powers differ from the International Court of Justice, as the ICJ lacks enforcement power. However, the ICC also has limited abilities as it can only investigate situations in states which have signed the Rome Statute and Israel has not. A man in his 80s was airlifted to safety by emergency workers on Sunday after falling down a cliff in Victoria's Yarra Ranges. It's understood he was near the Capel lookout where he fell around 10 metres. After being provided with initial first aid, the man was winced up into an ambulance helicopter on a stretcher. He was flown to Alfred Hospital where he was treated with non-life-threatening injuries in the head and pelvis. Particular caution is being exercised due to the man's age. And over the weekends, parts of Western Australia in near 50 degrees Celsius as a heatwave sweeps across three states. The town of Parabodu, around 1,500 kilometres from Perth, hit 47 degrees on Sunday, with the same expected for today. This is just a few degrees shy of the hottest temperature ever recorded in so-called Australia at 50.7 degrees in Pilbara town of Onslow in January of last year. Officials from the Borough of Meteorology say that large parts of the mainland will see low-intensity heatwave conditions. Now that's all I've got for you for headlines this morning. Now let's on to move let's move on to our first segment for today. The Your Ground NSW crowdsource map launched on 15 November 2023 and is open for submissions until February 2024. This interactive crowdsource map asks women and gender diverse people to pin a spot and share their experiences about safety across New South Wales to help create more inclusive public spaces and transport hub precincts. This is by Sonia Rathauer from Wednesday Breakfast, speaking to Dr. Nicole Carms, director of XYX Lab, from who is and she's the associate professor from Monash University. So let's take a listen. We're now going to go to an interview with associate professor at Monash University, Nicole Carms. She's a founding director of the XYX Lab and has recently been doing a survey, published the results of a survey, on safety in public spaces for women and gender diverse people. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Good morning, Sonia. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Now, tell me, it says that um, the XYX Lab is about gender, place, art and architecture. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So, as you say, we're based at Monash University and we're a group of researchers predominantly with backgrounds in architecture and urbanism and design. And our commitment is to really think about how gender and public space impact each other and the kind of reciprocal relationship between them. And so we work with communities to think about, in this particular case, in the project we're going to talk about this morning, about how we can make women and gender diverse people feel safer and more included in the environments that they're moving through. Great. So tell me a little bit about what the study was and how it was conducted. 
So Your Ground has now run in Victoria and um, at the moment it's running in New South Wales and it's a research project that's essentially an interactive map. So you jump online in a web browser through your smartphone or computer and you women and gender diverse people can contribute their experiences anonymously about where they're feeling safe or unsafe in public space. And what we do with this data is we create insights that can really tell governments and local communities about how cities can be improved to make them safer uh, and, as I say, to make women feel more included and to create equitable places. So when was the project in Victoria done? So we launched that project during the pandemic, in the thick of the pandemic in 2020, uh, and we were, and we still are kind of talking about the project. Um, even today, I, I'm still making presentations and working with communities about the work. And late last year, we launched the project in New South Wales. So it kind of runs for a particular amount of time and has phases where there's really active engagement and then we kind of write the reports and deliver that and then the next kind of phases of work begin. And what has been the community response like? Look, we, um, it won't surprise many people to know that women really want to share their stories about public spaces. I think one of the things that we're increasingly aware of when we're thinking about our cities and towns and communities is that there is a real inequity about how we think about what we might prioritise. Uh, and how we consider where we might spend money and who that money should be spent on. So one of the things that's really popular um, in media to talk about is the amount of money that might get spent on sport and recreation facilities and also that recent conversation around how women might be minoritised as a result of that. And so really trying to understand what is a kind of way of approaching this where women and particularly girls as well, have equal access to those kinds of facilities. But all of these things become part of the, the research story, if you like. And were there any community stories that really stood out to you or any um, ideas that came forth from the research that you've been doing and the surveys that you've done? Look, when we did the work in Victoria, and so that work is, that, that survey is finished, the one in New South Wales is still going, but, you know, for this Victorian audience, um, it was during COVID, but nonetheless, I think that there was a lot of um, feedback around parks and lighting in parks, mm -hmm. and we have seen that play out. So now we are currently Royal Park is undergoing a, uh, not a renovation, but a, a kind of, a, it's being, a strategy is being redeveloped for that project. And also places like the Mary Creek, you know, that's a significant project that we've been working with um, the Mary Beck community on for a number of years. And that's also something that's seen significant investment in terms of women and girls. One of the really interesting things that came out of the Your Ground report, which we didn't expect to find at all, but we found ourselves kind of talking about, is just the amount of women that buy dogs so that they can exercise um, in the early morning and after dark. So, um, you know, there, there are things that women and gender diverse people are making workarounds all the time to navigate through public spaces, whether it's using, you know, spending money on Ubers and taxis and purchasing their first car and not taking a job that's late at night. You know, there's lots of things that are really important that come out of the work that we do. As an early morning dog walker myself, I can relate to that. Um, so you mentioned a bit about the changes to um, Royal Park and Marybeck. What um, other policy initiatives have come out as a result of the research that you did here in Victoria? Well, I think it's actually a bit back, back the other way. Um, in 2020, the uh, Victorian state government um, legislated the 
Gender Equality Act. And so that was actually a really important moment for all of the communities and local government organisations in Victoria because it actually, for want of a better word, mandates communities to think very carefully about gender equity. And so at the moment there's a whole regime and system to acquit how they might audit public spaces as well as their organisations. But they're accountable for thinking about gender. And this is a really great thing because it means that People are talking about these issues um, in local government. They're also really beginning to understand, and this is kind of core to the work that my research lab does, how to work with women and gender diverse people. So as a result of the Your Ground project in Victoria, we went on to then partner with three local councils, so Melton, Wyndham and um, Moreland, uh, Mel- Melton, Monash and Wyndham, and we did a whole range of co-design activities with those women in those communities to really think very specifically about what was happening in their local areas. And so this really kind of has snowballed this legislation to really make us start to think very carefully and invest in women and gender diverse people. Could you talk a bit about what that, what those um, consultations, what the, those discussions looked like? Because it might interest our listeners and help them to talk to their local councils about getting them implemented elsewhere. Absolutely. So the, this particular project, it was called Safe Spaces and it was funded by the Department of Justice and Community Services and it was in partnership with an organisation called Welcoming Cities. And um, it was about identifying women's awareness of the problems in public spaces and it was specifically working with migrant women in these communities. So as you can imagine, when we do this research, there's lots of uptake from generally people in the centre of cities. And so working with these outer suburbs was really critical, but also we have a real remit around making sure that we work with women from diverse backgrounds. And so this project really leveraged some of that. Um, important foundational work. So we wanted to understand their experience and so they were core to the research. They were involved in every single stage of the research. Um, We did really interesting work um, and this was in collaboration with a whole team of researchers but we did what we would describe as walking surveys which is where you literally interview women as you walk through their communities to talk about issues of safety. A really important tool that we then created toolkits about. So so could I... Sorry, that sounds really interesting, and I'd just like to yep. delve deeper into that a bit. Um, so basically you had a, like a clipboard or a phone or something like that, and you literally were walking the streets with these women, filling out where they feel safe and where they don't? Is that the idea, or have I misread yep, that, that? that? No, you've totally got it. So it's a kind of form of auditing mm-hmm. where you're asking her to direct a conversation and to talk about her experiences in the public spaces that she's moving through on a day-to-day basis and it's led by the women Mm. Um, and yeah it it is literally you know um, iPad or clipboard and really thinking and listening to what those experiences might be Um, and we did that with there are about 80 women who were involved in the kind of co-design process but it's very time intensive as you can imagine. Yes I was just thinking that. But what really emerged from those very detailed one-to-one interviews was things about racism, about nighttime experiences, mm-hmm. um, about harassment and assault, um, about isolation. And these things were emergent themes that then became part of the larger research project. But, yeah, the walking interview was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the outputs was, of that research was a toolkit that showed other communities across Victoria and indeed anywhere, the publicly available document, how to actually undertake a walking interview and how to do that particular process with women in their community. 
And is that available, just quickly, is that available online and could um, listeners have a look at that and do something yep. similar in there? Um, we could send you a link and you can put we'll it on We'll put your... that up on our show notes. Yep. That would be great. Um, now, you um, mentioned the impact of the Gender Equality Act. Is there similar legislation in New South Wales and is that having a similar impact or can we see differences as a result of the lack of that sort of legislation? So... Uh, my understanding, New South Wales have a slightly different approach. What they do have is a women's um, commissioner. So the work that we're doing up there is being, has been commissioned by a woman called Dr Hannah Tonkin, and she's a women's safety commissioner. But they also have what's called a women's safety charter, which again is, a, is um, we think, kind of comparable to the Gender Equality Act here, where it's really starting to make communities think about how they're dealing with gender in public spaces. So I think what, what this tells us is the absolute momentum that's happened around these issues, um, you know, related to women and girls in public spaces and gender diverse people in public spaces, and the, the commitment by government to think about this issue. And one of the things I find myself kind of saying around whether it's New South Wales government, Victorian government, Marybeck, City of Melbourne, these aren't happy stories that we're finding when we do this work. And it really takes a great deal of commitment to want to change it because it's not a terrific public-facing message, you know, to have to be dealing with women's sense of feeling unsafe in public spaces. So we really need to um, give credit to the communities that are tackling this and aren't standing back from the issue. And so I think we're seeing that with, you know, the work that we're doing in New South Wales, but also with some of the communities that are now taking up these really um, important concerns here in Victoria. And could you just run through some of the things that you found in terms of the facts and figures um, of how safe women and gender diverse people do feel um, in public spaces? Yeah, I might do that kind of generally so yeah. that um, it's, it's relevant. Basically, what we find in the research that we do, so when our, as I mentioned, this map that we make allows women and gender diverse people to plot where they feel safe and where they feel unsafe. And what we find is around three quarters of the pins that get dropped onto this map are about feeling unsafe. Now, that's to be expected because generally people um, will want to share kind of their concerns and so that's, that's pretty standard. About half of the unsafe pins are about nighttime experiences and again, that doesn't really surprise us but it's really important to understand that after dark is a really concerning time for women and gender diverse people and it's not just that because what the result of feeling unsafe after dark is is that, as I say, we might not take particular jobs, we might not attend particular university classes, it might change our relationship to the way we're allowed to engage in recreational life. So these have flow-on effects that are really important for us to recognise. We also um, are able to see a couple of really interesting concerns that relate directly to my disciplinary area around urban design. So what we know is the major concerns that um, women and gender diverse people have is about the maintenance of public space. So if things are looking crappy, if the landscaping is not tended to, if there's rubbish or um, uh, uh, there's a, um, you know, evidence of people using drugs or using alcohol, these things really can make women and gender diverse people feel unsafe. So the maintenance of public space is critical. We also know that things like visibility, being able to see ahead, wayfinding, being able to know how long is it to the, the train station, how far is it going to 
be? Where, you know, how long is it going to take me to get there? Can I understand how I can move out of this space if things get tricky? Um, is there provision of a well-maintained and safe path? All of these things, which seem kind of minor, these are really, really critical to women and gender diverse people's experiences of just feeling safe. So um, then we start to kind of delve into some interesting things which perhaps contradict what uh, local communities are doing. So the kind of fallback position for issues of safety is to chuck in a whole lot of CCTV and heaps of bright lighting. And time and again, our research reiterates that this is not what makes women and gender diverse people feel safer. So the CCTV just makes them feel as though there's something to be concerned about and that they're going to find themselves, a, you know, a picture on the news that evening. So that's not a, that's not a, you know, that's a forensic tool. It's not a kind of safety initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with bright, bright lighting. They're, this kind of overlit public spaces, forget what it does to wildlife and, you know, all of those kind of important um, things about kind of overlighting spaces. Mm-hmm. It actually just makes women feel like they're really in a... Um, you know, on show. So we need designers who are really expert in designing urban lighting and we've been working with some people at Arup um, in their amazing lighting teams who really understand this issue. So these are the things that come up no matter what city we're working in, time and again. That's re- That sounds great. Um, and, yeah, not always intuitive. And mm. um, could you tell me any next steps that are being taken from where you are today? Yeah. So I guess the thing that we're interested in now is to use this tool as a repeat way to kind of order public spaces. So earlier I said that we did the All Ground Victoria in 2020. The aim is to see the work unfold with local communities. So things like what's been happening in Melton, um, in Marybeck, um, with the City of Melbourne, see how the data gets used by communities and then to redo the survey again so that we can see about shifts and start to track the kind of post-occurrences um, of, the, of the research work. Um, and also at the time in Victoria, I think we, we had 23 councils. There's, I think, around 77 councils in Victoria. We had 23 councils partner on that research. And since that time, even though we invited every single council to be part of the project, some didn't, and now they want to be part of it. So the idea of running it again means that the councils that perhaps didn't participate in that first iteration can now kind of benefit maybe a bit more directly um, when we run it again. So it is a tool that is supposed to be iterative and start to capture change. Um, So that would be a core kind of outcome. And is there anything that our listeners could do to either find out more or to participate in this right now, given that we are in Victoria where you say the survey is closed for now? Yeah, so um, I think what would be good, so it's only the New South Wales one that's open, but there's an archive map of the Victorian one. So I think um, we can put some links on your show to the, absolutely to the report. So the report is a publicly available document. So you can have a look at what came out of the research in Victoria. Um, And you can also have a look at the archive map and see what some of the information was around your local communities and the areas that you're moving through. Um, and, I mean, I think, you know, follow the XYX lab and look at the research that we're doing. Absolutely, as you mentioned, get engaged with your um, local community and find out what they're doing. If you can participate as a co-designer in public spaces um, and be a consultant and, you know, sh- express your concerns and interest in how public space is shaped. 
And that was Sonia Radha from Wednesday Breakfast speaking to Dr. Nicole Combs, Director of the XYX Lab, Associate Professor from Monash University, talking about the Your Ground NSW crowdsource map that was launched on 15 November 2023. And it's actually now open for submissions until February 2024. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now we're going to be listening to a song. This is called You Need a Friend by the Sunny Boys.
don't know what to do with the kids in January? Well, have I got news for you. 3CR is doing a live broadcast of the Tanamina Way and Moorboyhina commemoration at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street in Melbourne. It's the 17th year of the commemoration for the public execution of Tanamina Way and Moorboyhina, two Indigenous freedom fighters who were hung on the 20th of January for resisting white colonisation. It's a great education experience for the children. It's a children-friendly event. Come along, and if you can't come along, Listen in to the first hour on Community Radio 3CR, midday to 1pm, Saturday, the 20th of January. Let it be written in the maze, the survival of a culture is the reason that we made it. Yeah. Spirit time, keep it of our story. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And the song before that just now was You Need a Friend by the Sunny Boys. Now, there was actually a consultation process on the safe and responsible use of AI health in 2023. And just about a few days ago, the government released their interim response towards that. It It basically outlines how the government will take action and in the longer term. Now joining me this morning is Professor Geoff Webb, who is a data scientist in the Department of Data Science and AI Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University. And so we're going to be discussing on the government's AI interim response towards this consultation process. Good morning, Professor Geoff. Good morning, Grace. Lovely to hear you, and thank you so much for joining us. Now, before we get into what was the government's response, can we just roughly know what kind of responses we were receiving from this consultation process? Uh, as always, when you consult with the public, there's a very wide range of um, issues issues raised. So um, many people are very concerned about uh, the, the potential negative effects of artificial intelligence, uh, mm. but the government has uh, very appropriately realised that uh, there's need to balance those against um, not stifling the ability of Australia to take advantage of the opportunities that it offers. Mm, I see. And actually, currently with like the regulatory frameworks that, that we have at the moment, it doesn't really address the risk of AI, which is one of the, um, I think, the biggest concerns now with AI is there's many risks. So can you give us a bit of examples in terms of the risks that you were referring to? I think it's um, it's very easy to think that these systems are very different from what's come before and there's a need to do something dramatically different. But uh, in fact, they're a continuation of what's been a very long-term development. So I've been working in the area of AI since the 1980s uh, and the systems have been getting increasingly powerful uh, and this has been recognised over a long period of time. There is actually already a lot of um, very appropriate regulation to control various aspects of them. And people have gotten very excited about uh, the quite spectacular uh, steps forward shown by ChatGPT. Uh, but to me, the main concerns uh, around the technology are exactly the same as the ones that were already already present. Mm. So I think I think that many of the things that need to be done are already being done. 
Um, and as with any new technology, uh, it's going to take a long time before we really understand what the implications on our everyday lives are going to be. Mm, I see. And also, actually, in the beginning of the government's response, they mentioned that the they recognize many applications of AI don't do not present risk that require regulatory response. Do you think it's actually safe to do so, considering that they're considering new laws to misinformation and disinformation? Um, so there are... Um, it's probably true that AI is going to t- uh, touch upon a huge number of aspects of all of our uh, lives, Um um, increasingly our lives are led online and uh, online activities are going to increasingly be powered by these AI systems. Um, and where they're able to just make our interactions with the system uh, more fluid and um, easy to do, uh, there's, there's no obvious harm coming from that that needs to be regulated um, there are many potential harms that uh, can come from, from the systems, and the most obvious of those are, are their use by uh, people with um, ill intent of various sorts. Uh, so um, they are already being used by uh, foreign powers to uh, spread disinformation, um, and uh, they have an aim of uh, spreading chaos and Western liberal democracies <laughs> quite successful uh, in doing so and uh, these systems uh, enable them to um, create disinformation and misinformation um, at a scale that was not previously possible. Mm. Yep. But that's very hard to regulate against yes. because um, uh, if you uh, want to stop um, Russian agents from uh, spreading misinformation, uh, you can regulate to your heart's content, but uh, not pay much attention. Mm, I see. And just to double a bit on this, there was a, there's actually a challenge here with AI that once it brings, if it, once it brings harm, sometimes it can be irreversible, and dam- once the damage is already done, there's nothing we can pretty much do other than consider the deployment of the AI system. Can you ev- elaborate? When it what it comes to that when it comes to that stage of deployment is is it something we should be worried about? Uh, we need to be very careful about how these systems um, are deployed. Um, mm. One of the one of the issues, uh, especially with the current generation of uh, ChatGPT like systems, mm. is that they um, uh, you ask them a question and they will always provide an answer. They always provide it in a very um, authoritative manner, mm. um, but they have no concept of truth. They have no way of telling for themselves whether what they're saying is true or false. Uh, they just say things um, confidently. Uh, in fact, what they're, they're doing is they're... Um, giving a response, which is kind of what the average response of a um, well-educated person
person would be if they were uh, told to give a detailed answer to the question. And um, it may be true, it may not be. Mm. So it's very dangerous to rely on anything that they say as uh, being factual. Mm, I see. And So you don't want to deploy a system like that in a medical context. Uh, you don't want to um, rely on it as a lawyer. So there have already been cases where uh, lawyers have had to withdraw evidence from the court uh, because uh, they've, they've, they've given examples of previous cases which they've got chat GPT to produce and they've turned out to just be false. Mm, so it's it's really like, even though uh, we kind of have to rely on evidence when it comes to when it comes to the law, obviously, because the evidence is so important, but then the evidence that the chat GBC might give might not necessarily be exactly what's truthful. Is that correct? Is that what you meant? Uh, well, it may just be totally made up. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so one of the cases I'm talking about, um, uh, a lawyer was acting on behalf of somebody who was hurt by the trolley that goes down the aisle of an aeroplane. Um, mm. And so the lawyer presented to the court uh, examples of previous passengers successfully suing airlines for um, negligence and gave an example of another trolley going down a uh, aircraft aisle hurting somebody. And so that example was just totally made up. Oh, I see. Okay, wow. Yep, that is very, that's very dangerous to just suddenly mentioned something that's not even true. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, and the government will be including AI investment into the yeah, 2023, 20, uh, 2024 budget. What do you expect that they should be focusing on with this budget? Uh, so, we need to realise that to um, compete with uh, the United States, and the major corporations based in the United States that are developing these technologies need to be making billion-dollar investments. Uh, and I don't think Australia has um, appetite to do that. So I don't think we can be aiming to uh, compete with uh, OpenAI and Google and the rest um, with developing ever better um, variants of these systems. But it's important that we have um, deep understanding of what their capabilities are um, so that we are able to use them for our own benefits because we can't rely on American-based corporations to use these systems for our benefit rather than their own. Mm. Uh, and also to understand what the true risks really are. So it's really important that we invest in education so that we have an educated population that's not just walking uh, blindly into a future because these technologies are going to be transformative. Mm. And we also uh, invest in research so that we, um, while we may not be developing uh, the new systems, we at least have a deep understanding of what they're capable of. Mm. But in considering the rapid development of AI that it's bringing and it's progressing really, really quickly and really fast, what do you what do you think that should come first? Educating the public on the safe use of AI, or focusing on implementing mandatory safeguards? 
I think it's uh, much more important to educate people because that is actually a major safeguard. So we've seen mm. with uh, scamming, for example, um, so you can legislate as much as you want to make scamming illegal. It has no impact whatsoever. The uh, best defence against it is to educate people so they understand what the risks are when they uh, do various things uh, and can... Um, make their own choices, make informed choices. So I think it's very important that we um, educate people about, about what, what is going on, how they can best make use of it, uh, and how they can protect themselves against misuses. Mm, I see. Awesome. Well, that's all I've got for you today, Professor Geoff. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Grace. Thank I've enjoyed you. talking. Thank you. You have a lovely morning. I have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you. <laughs> right. Cheers. That was Professor Geoff, who is the who is a data scientist and part of the Department of Data Science and AI Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University where we were discussing the government's AI interim response to a consultation process on the safe and responsible use of AI. So yeah, I'll just I'll put up later in the show notes in, in terms of what the government was responding to, just to let you know. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We know you love listening to 3CR. But we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. No more whispering in our gonna rise up to break these chains and stop these killing games. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne, to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Our favourite Texas singing cowboy, Charlie Crockett, returns to Melbourne this February for a huge night at the Forum. Charlie and his band, The Blue Drifters, will deliver another scorching night of timeless country classics and Wild West tales on February the 12th with country soul queen, Emma Donovan. Charlie Crockett and Emma Donovan at the Forum in February. Good times. Tickets on sale now. Love Police is a 3CR supporter.
3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch.
You're listening to 3CR 855am here on the Breakfast Carnival Show with Grace. And that was a song called Good Die Young by the Divinals. Divinals, yeah. Now, we're going to be heading on to talking about building on the concept of the tragedy of the commons, where guest producers from Melbourne University sociology students compl- uh, they were competing sociology at the University of Melbourne and they dive into t- t- to the theory behind where the water can be collectively owned. So unpacking the sociology of sustainability, these student producers are here to walk you through on how the climate racism and patriarchy operate to limit marginalised people's rights to water and therefore right to life. Let's take a listen. Hello and welcome to our discussion of the tragedy of the water commons. My name's Vita and today I'm joined in the studio by my co-producers Z. Hello. Bree. Hi, this is Bree. And Ola. Hey, this is Ola. This is a water fountain that you know. This is a shower. And this is the sound of the Merry Creek from Clifton Hill. We engage with water every day and require it to live, but how often are we consciously thinking about it? We're all sociology students from the University of Melbourne studying social sustainability, and today we're going to try and use this knowledge to look more critically at water in Australia, relating understandings of water in everyday life to the popular theoretical concept of the commons. First, let's introduce the basic theories and frames to be the first step to getting to know our topic. I will explain them with a really hot headline recently, which is the Fukushima Dilemma. Tragedy of Commons Through the definition from the Dictionary of Sociology, as a social material assemblage, commons is associated with human groups as used in certain ways and for various within the community. The Tragedy of Commons, first popularized by Garrett Harding in United States State, describes a scenario where shared resources are overused and depleted due to individual self-interest. Yeah, I mean, do you think that capitalism and the commons are compatible at all? Capitalism is actually the opposite of capitalism. is based on the competition nature of markets. Wow, so in a system where everything is commodified for market competition, all common environmental resources have to be privatized and exploited for profit. Japanese water nuclear waste. Japan's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, which experienced a catastrophic disaster in 2011. As part of the cleanup process, Japan has decided to release treated nuclear waste water into the ocean since August 24, 2023. Yeah, that's pretty alarming. So how does this relate to the duality debates between commons and capitalism that you were talking about before? Actually, the two sides of the issue represent exactly the difference between commons and capitalism. For showing concerns to marine environment and thinking from the perspective of commons, while for supporting the release of treated nuclear water is from a capitalized stand. According to research studies from the UK and China in 2022 and 2021, terrible health issues will affect both humans and animals genetically. While according to Japanese government and companies, all the water are processed to control the influences towards environment and humans are legal and ethical. While this leaves environmental and sociological questions for future generations, questions will be discussed further next Paola. Thanks, C. It's scary the effects that water privatization can have on our environment. But from our comfy Aussie homes, it can be hard to conceptualize the daily water struggles of people living in the global south. 
And the people hit most hard are usually women. What if your reality was to walk for eight hours a day, every day, with the burden of kilos of water weight to carry for your family? So this is the grim reality for over a billion women around the globe in developing nations. In over two-thirds of households worldwide, it's actually young women who are traditionally the primary water collectors, according to the UN. So we can take a look at a case study by McFarlane and Desai of low-cost Dalit women in the slums of Mumbai to really show how water privatization has both a compounding racial and gendered effect. Since the 90s, Mumbai's water has been sold to big-name Western drinks manufacturers like Coca-Cola, so India can compete economically with the West, which is an unfortunate result of colonization and the globalization of capitalism. But it's come at a pretty big cost. The resulting water shortages and contamination from these drinks manufacturing plants have meant that women in the slums are now paying 40 rupee on water a day, where monthly family earnings are only around 5,000 rupee. This has caused a lot of women to set up illegal water piping systems towards informal settlements on the outskirts of Mumbai. The status of these communities as quote-unquote illegal is a very deliberate ploy by Western drink companies as well as the Indian government to delegitimize poor communities and justify taking away a very basic need, the right to water, a life-sustaining resource. In situations like these, women are forced to choose between paying for vital medications for children and paying for drinking water. Women who have caring obligations can't work more or abandon families to seek asylum, unlike their male counterparts. Decolonial theorist Akhil Mbembe posits that marginalised bodies living in such conditions are essentially living in a state of what he refers to as bare life, where they function on a daily basis with purely the aim of physical survival. So in 2010, when the Indian government cut these illegal pipes, this was an act of violence, subjecting these marginalised female bodies to the power of death to simply increase the profit margins of big commercial companies. True, but I also might ask how decolonial theory applies to women in this situation and how does it relate to feminist theory at all? Yeah, that's a really good question, Vida. Well, firstly, while Mbembe notes that sexuality is linked to violence, black feminism has called out how he invisibilizes gendered forms of violence. Women's inability to access water also means they can't access sanitation and as a result, express their femininity. So to give you an example, the delete women from those illegal communities we spoke about before, they have to travel in groups to landfill locations in order to just relieve themselves um, due to a lack of water for toilets and other hygiene facilities. These trips strip the women of their humanity and dignity because they're tied to their own bodily secretions in this way. And they're not even able to access the luxury of privacy because they face the possibility of rape and murder from men that wait at these areas if they go alone to relieve themselves. So they have to go in large groups. In a lot of cases, women strategically starve and even dehydrate themselves so as not to risk this gendered violence at night if they have the urge to urinate. So it's pretty clear that the unequal distribution of water can be powerfully felt along these gendered lines. This is where ecofeminism comes in as a theoretical paradigm to help us understand this gendered phenomenon, but I'll walk you through it. So building on Z's explanation of cannibal capitalism, ecofeminism basically proposes that the capitalist destruction of nature is sort of an extension of patriarchy. Yeah, that is a really interesting point that links directly to mine, actually. 
Yeah, so it might seem like it's a leap, but there has long been a masculine ideal of being able to tame and control Mother Nature, which is continually represented as feminine in Western symbolism. Theorist Frankie Wilmer even describes patriarchy as a meta-narrative of domination, which is a useful way of looking at how patriarchy lays the foundation for the beliefs that lead to the capitalist uncommoning of water. But it's because of all of their closeness to everyday sustainable practices that it's imperative that these women from the global south are included as experts in environmental policy. And that's what these eco-feminists have noted. I feel like we talk about theory a lot, but what are some real-world examples of grassroots women's approaches to water sustainability that have actually worked? Yeah, you're so right, Vita. It can get pretty easy to get bogged down in the theories. I can give you one example. So there was a recent case study um, of the implementation of fog catches in the northern mountains of Morocco. So these fog catches are some incredible net tops that trap drops of water from the fog that blows across these mountains. With climate change increasing temperatures in that area by 1.8 degrees yearly, they really needed a rapid solution. The water from these nets is fed through a piping system towards traditional Berber villages. The whole initiative was set up by a female Moroccan anthropologist, Dr. Jamila Barak. This was after the anthropologist noticed that traditional Berber women were walking upwards of a marathon daily to acquire water. This initiative was inspired by ancient indigenous fog catching practices around the globe, such as from Oman and South America, thereby recentering and uplifting female indigenous knowledge with technology. The implementation of an education program on how to use the nets meant women could have agency and learn how they and the whole community could sustain themselves for years to come. And through the consulting with the women of the community in every step of the process, Barak ensured that the water could be distributed in the most sustainable way. Berber women now have an extra four to five hours a day, and they can spend that with their children and even earning money, which was a privilege they didn't have before. They were also able to use water for vital hygiene practices that have improved health and restored a sense of womanhood. This project was therefore not only highly sustainable, but empowering to these rural women in the global south by putting their needs first. Importantly, ecofeminism must be applied to these successful cases in a reflexive way that acknowledges Spivak's theory of the subaltern as well, to create a bottom-up approach to solving the problem, rather than viewing these women as having one collective knowledge and identity. It's only by giving these women a voice and a seat at the table that we'll see real positive change in the commoning of water. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to me, Ola Wallace, talking about ecofeminism in relation to water. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Coming up next is student producer Brioni Young, who will be discussing Indigenous epistemologies in relation to the commoning of water. Honestly, shared resources like water sounds like a utopian dream under a capitalist society. However, the commons water did exist and was sustained through First Nation peoples' epistemologies and ontologies. Looking at the Murray-Darling River Basin, it is one of the largest and most vital river systems in Australia, which spans multiple states. For generations, First Nations people maintained and continue to maintain a deep connection with the river. The river provided life and in turn it was nurtured and cherished. This relationship is beautifully summarised by a Yorta Yorta woman, Monica Morgan. We have always been and will always be the first people of this land. 
We belong to it, and the water that flows through our country is as the blood that flows through our veins. Our bodies are formed from the country, and it remains tied to its rhythms. This epistemological approach has allowed First Nations people to exist in symbiosis with the land for over 65,000 years till present day. Furthermore, the practice of songlines has fundamentally assisted with this continuous way of living and is an integral part of Indigenous land management and the existence of the water commons. Margot Neal explains, songlines connected sites of knowledge embodied in the features of the land. It is along these roots that people travelled to learn from country. Songlines are foundational to our being, to what we know and how we know it and when we know it. They are our knowledge system, our library, our archive. So could you explain what led to the tragedy of common water in Australia then? While we can't cover all the reasons in one episode, the genocide of First Nations people at the hands of colonial settlers is nothing short of tragic and deeply disturbing. Expanding on this violence, colonialism is also culpable for the genocide of epistemologies, or epistocides, a strategic tool of colonialism that has led to the degradation of the land and consequently the uncommoning of water. To understand this process, it's crucial to recognise how knowledge outside of a Western framework has been treated. White supremacy is sustained and maintained maintained through the enforcement of racial hierarchies, which is the primary support system for colonialism. This social stratification of people can be assessed through the concept of Orientalism, in which colonial powers positioned themselves as dynamic and progressive and flexible. In contrast, everyone beyond the confines of whiteness was seen as primitive and static. And as applied to First Nations people by Bain Atwood, the Australian construction of the self is based on the Aboriginal other. This underscores how the construction of identity for Indigenous people was shaped by these deeply entrenched racist logics, which galvanised the process of degrading or erasing the existence, belief systems, values, knowledge and the land of Indigenous people. Tui Smith states... Knowledge was there to be discovered, extracted, stolen or raised, an active effort to destroy epistemologies to benefit colonisers. Thus, the uncommoning of water resources is a repercussion of these racist logics that is intertwined with the capitalist agenda. This process and outcome has been produced and reproduced, becoming organised and systematic under white supremacy and capitalism. In 1823, Edward Page remarked, When we first came here, I started a vegetable garden. The soil dug like ashes. Nowadays, a common spade would be useless. In 1901, James Cotton wrote, The ground was soft, spongy and absorbent. Gradual deterioration of the country caused by stock has transformed the land from its original soft, spongy, absorbent nature to a hard clay surface. These accounts demonstrate an admittance to the way in which colonialism is directly linked to the tragedy of the commons and the destruction of the land. This destruction has not only devastated Indigenous people's ways of living, but has also led to the corruption of colonisers' quality of life, despite claims of superiority. Let's not give colonisers too much space, though. Moving on, to continue Ola's sentiment in celebrating, uplifting and shining the light on traditionally marginalised voices in white Australia, I'm going to share a case in which songlines have been practised in the present century. In 2010, Australia was gripped by an unrelenting, decade-long drought, affecting everyone from rural farmers to urban dwellers. The Murray-Darling Basin waters was at an all-time low. Uncle Major Sumner, an elder and law keeper of the Nagarin Jerry people, the traditional custodians of the land and rivers, 
emphasised the importance of reconnecting culture and earth. He stated, Just as the human body needs blood, the rivers and wetlands need water. Uncle Major Sumner undertook the revival of Ringbalan, an ancient ceremonial dance and song journey that spanned an extensive length of the river, from the headwaters of the River Darling in Queensland to the Gulwamu Nation. Dancers from various nations came together to embark on an epic 2,000-kilometer voyage. Nangba elder Paul Gordon expressed, The unity of people mirrors the flow of water. The resonance of their dance and songs had a profound impact of the land, on the land. Dark clouds gathered and rain poured down, marking the largest recorded rainfalls in years. This inspiring story reminds us of the wisdom of Indigenous communities and the deep connection they hold with the land. Rejuvenating nature goes hand in hand with revitalizing culture and spirit. As described by Elder Major Sumner, the rain followed our path, sweeping across the land. This was a remarkable journey of reconnection and transformation, driven by the profound insights and wisdoms of Indigenous people. Restoring water to the Murray-Darling Basin is not just an environmental necessity, but a spiritual and cultural revival. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. You're listening to 3CR AM, and that was a very interesting concept looking at the tragedy of the commons produced by guest producers, the, which are the Melbourne University sociology students Ola Wallace, Ziyuan, Briani Young and Rita Davis diving into the theory behind whether water can be collectively owned. And it's crazy actually thinking about it, just how even just even with water, there's limits and rights to owning it. And that's part of modern nature and it's everywhere. So it's absolutely, it's, it's, just, it's just insane that these things are even limited. And the, the students looked at they basically walked us through how climate racism and patriarchy operates to limit the marginalized people's rights to water and afford a right to life. Well, this is actually an excerpt of a longer discussion. So if you want more information, you can head to treecr.org.au slash earthmatters and you can listen to the longer version of it over there. So yeah, I'll put up in the show notes as well. We're going to be going into a very interesting segment next one, looking at Black Powerhouse, which is returning this January 26th, this Friday. So just stay tuned and we'll be back with you. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference happening over the Easter weekend. 
The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM here on the Breakfast Current Affairs show with Grace. Now, we're going to be speaking to Powerhouse Associate Director First Nations Boy James on the return of Black Powerhouse, which is a series of community-led events ranging from documentary to performance, set to return this Friday at January 26th. Good morning, Bo. Good morning, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. Lovely to have you on our show. Now, Bo, before, um, not before, sorry, uh, what is Powerhouse about? And can you just share with us about roughly what's the theme for this year as well? Yeah, sure. Look, Black Powerhouse is a reclamation. It's about turning a day of associated with loss and sorrow into one of power and positivity. Um, it's in partnership with We Are Warriors. And as far as themes, there's no really theme, but it is about celebrating black excellence and black power and bringing black joy to this amazing space on this night. Um, it's an all-ages event. It's for mob, it's for allies, it's for advocates. Um, it's an evening of um, collaboration with a mix of live music, dance, 
arts talks, workshops. I think there's also markets, foods and DJs as well. So it's a huge, huge event. Mm, that's lovely. And how did Powerhouse come to collaborate with, 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 with We Are Warriors on this event? Yeah, look, I think um, We Are Warriors, um, founded by Australian rapper and creator Nookie, um, approached the Powerhouse in 2023. So the first year we did it was 2023. It um, attracted more than 3,000 people and was such an amazing night. And the, the Powerhouse has just set up its First Nations directorate over the last um, few years. And the First Nations directorate is all about um, signaling the self-determined future and direction for First Nations engagement and representation. So Nookie and We Are Warriors fitted perfectly into um, what we're trying to achieve there. You know, and We Are Warriors is an all-encompassing cultural movement. It's a platform dedicated to inspiring, equipping, empowering Indigenous youth to succeed by connecting them with First Nations role models. Um, and we are very honoured to partner with them and support this event um, that continues to empower our communities. Mm. And this event, it's happening on the Powerhouse Ultimate Forecourt. Can I get to know a bit about the specialty of this location? Is there a reason why this place was chosen? The Powerhouse is is um, our key has been our key building for quite some time. We have a new, great, big, amazing building being built out at Parramatta. But Ultimo has been our home for ages. But, uh, you know, it's also situ- situated on the lands of the Gadigal people too. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal this morning and the lands um, I live in are honoured to work on and this event will take place. Um, it's not just on the forecourt of the Powerhouse. The Powerhouse has three levels. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taking over the whole of the building. Um, with the programming, we've also still got Powerhouse exhibitions that people can come and see. Um so, yeah, not just on the forecourt, taking over the whole of the powerhouse precinct um, with black power. Mm, I see. So what can listeners look forward to over here with, with this event? Uh, you said that it's happening throughout the whole entire building. So it's yeah. it's just for this one day where everything's happening, right? From- yeah, yeah. It's the one day where we're taking over the powerhouse and turning it into black powerhouse. And the event starts at 5 run through till 10pm, so 5pm till 10pm. Um, we have music from Meningang, Mike Keisha, Rona, Miss Kanina, Beck Hatch, 3%, uh, JK47 will also be joining us. There's going to be a panel discussion, Black Power and Excellence is the name of that panel discussion. We have visual artworks by Michael Cook, um, Jakapura, uh, video um, documentary, Fire, uh, through the Fire by We Are Warriors, um, which will be playing down in our theatres and cinemas as well. Um, so, yeah, there's heaps and heaps to do. And as I said, plus our market stalls that will be happening up in our food space as well. Mm, that's amazing. I was just I was just curious, uh, suddenly this question popped into my mind. Uh, yeah. All these artists, are they all different mix of music uh, music artists or are they? is it just to a specific type of genre? Uh, no, I think there's a mix there, but it is... Um, you know, there's quite a bit of hip hop in there and stuff like that. So, but it is a mix mix of genres um, being played, and and as you can see, both a mix of um, men and women performing as well, um, and and groups performing. So it's it's a great selection of different music. Mm, that's amazing. And so, I again, can we get from you to just understand how can listeners attend for this event? Oh yeah, look, anyone can attend. Um, I know probably a lot of your listeners are in Melbourne, so if they want to make the trip, by all means, please, please come and join us here. But it's a free event and attendance is easy. You just have to jump onto the Powerhouse website and register on the back Powerhouse page. 
um, bits of the event we're hoping to stream live across our social media platforms. So you may be able to jump onto Facebook and Instagram and see some specific bits that are being played um, if you're not able to make it. Um, so, yeah, but it's all just by jumping on, clicking the attendance button, all free. And as I said, at all ages event, anyone and everyone is welcome. Awesome. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cheers. Hope to see everyone there. Lovely. And that was Professor, that was Powerhouse Associate Director, First Nations, Bo James, speaking about the return of Black Powerhouse, which is going to be a very fun series of community-led events, ranging from documentary to arts and performances. So now it's set to return this Friday at January 26th. I know a lot of listeners here are in Victoria, in Melbourne at the moment, but if you're heading down to Sydney, do you go and attend this event. So just giving you a bit more details again on this event. It's happening on the venue. Its venue is happening on the Gadigal land at the Powerhouse Altimo at 500 Harris Street, Altimo, New South Wales, 2007. The entry is free, but you are required to register. I'll pop the link for this event on the show notes so that you can go and register in case you are attending and it's happening from 5 to 10 p.m so you can remember it's friday 26th of january 5 to 10 p.m and powerhouse actually encourages visitors with accessibility requirements to contact them via book at powerhouse.com.au so that's the email i'll repeat again it's book at powerhouse.com.au or you can even just call them at 02-9217-0222 so there's triple twos at the end and yep they'll help you with planning your visits they also accept companion cards so yeah do go for this event if you're heading down to Sydney this Friday you're listening to 3CR855AM Fifths, it's back. I 
You're listening to 3CR855 AM and that was a song called Watch Me Disappear by OG March. Well, listeners, that's all we got for you today, this morning. Thank you so much for joining me and it's been really lovely to have you to continue to listen to me blabbering, blabbering, blabbering. <laughs> and yeah, I look forward to next week's show and I hope you do so too. This has been Grace for GCI Breakfast Current Affairs Show. And thank you so much for joining me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.